It's show 126 of the Rim Pro Report this week. John Balzer of Goldman Sachs and the latest industry news. Uh, this show is sponsored by my good friends at O'Neill Software. I love the fact that O'Neill has 24-hour coverage around the world. This includes support for partners in the Americas, Europe, Middle East, and Africa, as well as throughout the Asia-Pacific region. So when you need them, they are there to support you. Consistently, great software and the support you require for your RIM service business. You can check them out yourself at O'NeillSoft.com. I think it's time to get this show on the road. Welcome to the RIM Pro Report. The one and only weekly broadcast for the RIM support services industry. Hustling with news, views, and the latest updates. This show is full of interesting information. So take notes. Now here's your host, Tom Adams. Greetings and salutations, RIM Nation. Welcome back to the RIM Pro Report. It's February already, and this is a short month, so make sure you are cranking early in the month with whatever you need to get done. Here at the world headquarters of the RIM Pro Report, we're working to get some incredible people to talk to in the weeks ahead, and today is no exception. I am extremely excited to have a chance to talk to John Balzer. John is the director with the Special Situations Group at Goldman Sachs. I'll be sure to ask him what that means, but I am excited because John has been the lead on a whole lot of financial deals in the rim industry that Goldman Sachs is involved in, and I really felt that hearing his viewpoints and talking to him about what he sees going on in the industry uh, would be really helpful and valuable to all of us. So that's about to happen, but before we do, let's get caught up on the latest industry news. The acquisitions continue. Looks like Stevens and Stevens Business Records Management of Clearwater, Florida has acquired A1 Document Security of St. Petersburg, Florida. A1 has been in the shredding and recycling business and is a great acquisition for SSBRM. Looks like Alan, Adam, and Dean Ball, the former owners of A1, will become part of the Stevens and Stevens team. So congratulations to Marshall and Rhett on this, their latest acquisition. Lambert Record Center of Florence and Huntsville, Alabama has just been awarded the statewide contract for all Alabama state agencies. This is a 36-month contract deal covering all 38 counties in the state. So congratulations to Rhett Lambert and the team there at Lambert Record Center on a very cool deal. Iron Mountain has just announced the release of their total offsite record solutions for law firms. This is a highly targeted solution that includes offsite storage and digitization, a more integrated solution for a niche vertical. While this is a specialization strategy, you have to know that this approach is becoming more important going forward. Specialization that supports a particular type of client's needs is really what they're looking for, and that integration is important. And so, if anything, watch what Iron Mountain is doing, and I hope you're learning from it. Hey, Nate has just announced some great numbers for 2012. First, Nate now boasts 1,938 member locations worldwide. That's a good number. Here's a couple of other ones. Nate added 159 new member locations, and 177 member locations actually became AAA certified in 2012. Interestingly enough, of the 159 new member locations, 40% actually are offering sanitization degaussing or electronic media destruction services. So congratulations to Nade on a great year in 2012. 
Finally, I don't know if you had the chance, but I had the chance yesterday to sit on Andy Cavell's webinar yesterday for industry people, not for clients, not for customers, but for those of us who live and breathe within the commercial records and information management world. Wow, it was pretty intense stuff. He seemed to to have a really honest assessment about the state of the record storage industry as he sees it. I think one of the most critical statements he talked about was the new reality of year-over-year internal growth dropping into the 4 to 5% range versus the 10% plus ranges that uh, were very much evident uh, five years ago and even in higher numbers, typically in the 12, 13, 14%, uh, you know, 10 plus years ago. And the importance of doing things as a result very differently going forward. He talked a lot about paperless solutions, policy management, information governance as where the, the industry is forcing us to head to stay out of that sort of a commoditization uh, trap that we're really getting uh, pushed into connecting digital to physical uh, and building uh, value to our clients in the long run. So I hope you had a chance to catch that yesterday. I thought it was powerful and I, I thought it was extremely uh, informative and I'm grateful that Andy Cavell did that public service uh, to the industry. Um, really great information. Well, that's it for the news. If you have any news to share, let me know. I'm going to get John Balzer on the line. Hang on tight while I do. John Balzer is a director with Goldman Sachs in the Special Situations Group. I'm delighted to have him on the show today. John, are you there? Tom, I'm here. How are you? Oh, great. Welcome to the Rim Pro Report. It's it's really good to have you on the show. So let let's start by connecting the dots for context. How did Goldman Sachs, the Rim industry, and you all intersect? How does this all come together? Yeah, it's interesting, Tom. You know, there's there's three very different areas of the firm uh, that various people are familiar with, depending on you know their experience with the firm. But you know, you have broadly a private wealth group that advises high net worth individuals and families on how to invest their money. Um, you have an investment banking group that advises companies, um, and not dissimilar from some of the investment banks that people are familiar with in the rim space, like a, like a David Lane or a Chris Howard. Um, and then you have a, a direct lending and investing group um, that the Special Situations Group falls in. That's the group I'm in. Um, we have a pretty broad mandate uh, to go out and find opportunities to make money and make it, you know, on a risk-adjusted basis. And so, you know, in over time, uh, found this industry and, and have just gotten deeper and deeper over time. So... Tell me a little bit, let's let's go back, because there's a whole bunch of stuff you threw into that, that first statement there. Tell me a little bit about the special situations group. So you uh, obviously are this one division within uh, Goldman Sachs. So wh what kinds of things are you involved in? What, are, what do they look like? We're going to talk more specifically about RIM, but are there other things? Tell me, tell me a little bit about the special situations group. Yeah, the special situations group is a worldwide group at the firm. Mm-hmm. You have, you have a piece of it that is America's special situations, and there's a special situations group in Europe, and there's a special situations group in Asia. The, the European and Asian groups are a little bit different than ours. They tend to invest more kind of in portfolios and things of that nature. Special situations group here, you know, and particularly the specialty lending group that I'm in. Um, which is a subset of the special situations group, has a pretty big mandate to invest in both healthy and distressed companies, various industries, and really across across the capital structure. It's a very long-term focus group. 
you know, investing in, in various industries that we've gotten deep in and, and, you know, I've built a lot of relationships with to grow. Okay. So how did you get to where you are today? So how did you get to Goldman and what's your background and story up till your current position in the special situations group? Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. I, I never would have guessed I would have been here. Yeah. Coming out of college, I was an accounting major, really just enjoyed business overall. Wasn't sure where that was going to take me, but just really enjoyed it. You know, did that as kind of a foundation. As I started, you know, into my career, I knew I wanted to get more toward the deal side. So started pursuing that and I eventually ended up at GE Capital. Uh, oh, okay. That's where I learned kind of the credit side of the business and lending side of the business. Spent a couple years at GE Capital, and during that time, Goldman was starting this this middle market focus group, the specialty lending group that would focus on these deals that are much smaller than than uh, deals that you know Goldman had typically done in the past. and right. wanted to build a group around it. And they hired a bunch of the senior guys that had hired me at GE Capital. Oh, okay. And so those guys ultimately hired me over here, and we've got a team here of us that, that have worked together for over ten years. Some of us between between here and Goldman Sachs or between here and G Capital. So it's been a great group, and it's just just kind of a pleasure to work with. So let's let's then dig into the Rim World. How did Goldman Sachs initially get into the Rim World? And tell me a little bit about that. Were you involved at the start? I was. I was the first deal that kind of got our exposure to the industry and had us really digging and learning more. We had a guy named Robert Olson that covered Canada for us. And so back in kind of 2005, 2006, Robert uh, got introduced to Greg Brophy at Shredit. Oh, wow. Okay. We looked at that deal. They were very much in their, you know, very rapid growth days. Obviously, Greg, you know, owned and controlled the company yeah. and was just growing at a, at a very rapid pace. And so they needed a, a more flexible kind of lender. Um, they had been dealing with Canadian banks that are a little more conservative than the banks down here in the U.S. Right. Um, so we looked at a deal for them to grow, provided that, and ultimately we're in that deal for over three years, I believe. And the more we got into it over time, you know, between seeing the shredding side of the business, the storage side of the business, we said, gosh, this is a really great business. we got to go find more of these. Hmm. So we, you know, between going to PRISM, I've been at PRISM every year now for the last, you know, six or seven years, you know, just getting to know the various management teams, you know, I've tried to get as much exposure to the industry as we could, and it's been a good industry for us. So that early deal with Shredit, uh, is that back when Secure It was starting to happen as well? It was. Okay. It was. That was part of the part of the growth. Okay. So that that obviously gave you this glimpse into what this world was all about, and and then that started a you know obviously you said you got involved in the industry and now you've been investing for quite some time in the industry. So how has the history you've been involved in your deal history and your connection helped you in ongoing transaction? Because I mean, Shredit's the first one out of the gate. Give me a sense of some of the, the things you've learned along the way in this industry and maybe how you learned those ones. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we've we've gotten good exposure to really many of the significant players in the industry. And we've, we've done previous deals with Access. We got to know Dennis Barnett and Rob Alston very well, kind of financed them throughout their very rapid acquisition growth as well. And just seeing activity, seeing deals, you know, obviously the Access guys are absolute pros at doing what they do and really just learning from them as well. And mm. I think as you, as a lender and investor, learn more, you get more comfortable, which then allows you to be more flexible because, 
you know, the, the bank that has never seen the industry before, has never seen a deal, or is not as comfortable with the acquisitions, just can't be as aggressive. And so I think it just kind of snowballs where, you know, from the beginning on its surface, it makes a lot of sense. And then as you build up years of experience and see, you know, numerous transactions, you just get more and more comfortable. Um, and I think that's what's, you know, gotten us to the place we are today where, you know, we either know, invest in, or talk to just about everybody. Right. I and mean, I think we've built up that respect, you know, across the industry. People know that we understand it. They know that we're able to provide flexible solutions. You know, and hopefully, you know, that allows us to do business with more in the industry over time. Yeah. So what do you guys love about the industry? What's as an investor, as a banker, let's say, uh, what do you what do you love about this industry that is particularly appealing from the finance side of the equation? Yeah, it's the um, it's the stability, really, you know, to have, you know, very strong contracts in place. Typically, very little, if any, customer concentration. Very steady revenue. Kind of know what know what you have. Mm-hmm. It's just unique. I mean, there aren't a lot of industries like that. I mean, you know, we we invest in a lot of other kind of recurring business services, and you know, software, and you know, transaction processing, and wireless towers, things that have that recurring revenue yeah. that this has. Yeah. Um, and that's what's really attractive. I mean, you know, on the on the cost side of the business, you can pretty much understand, you know, and diligence and make sure that, you know, you're comfortable with the cost side from a real estate and people perspective. Right. Um, you know, and on the revenue side, you just have stability, you know, creating a lot of free cash flow. And for us, also as, as a lender and investor, just the need for capital. It's an industry that growing companies really need capital. Um, you know, some, some industries aren't as capital intensive, and so there's less of an opportunity for us. Right. And so just to be involved with the growing players, you know, they really need us and need to keep coming back to continue to grow. And that's, that's great. That's what, that's what we're trying to do. So is it the racking part of it that is so capital intensive and that's the piece for you? Or is it the acquisition piece? What's that capital thing that you see that allows you to become such an important part of it? Yeah, I think it's all the above. Okay. You know, and people obviously grow differently. You know, you take someone like GRM, that we've been a lender to uh, for several years. GRM's primarily grown organically, you know, so they're constantly adding real estate, constantly adding rack, sometimes reimbursing amount fees for for accounts. Uh, it's all that requires capital. Um, and then again, you have some of the some of the acquirers out there and consolidators, and they primarily need capital for acquisitions. Right. And so for those types of deals, it's more on a one-off kind of acquisition basis as they as they grow through acquisitions. So really all of the above. Okay. So this last couple of years, and you've obviously been deeply involved in this, there have been significant numbers of acquisitions. So from your perspective, what do you see happening in the next year or so? Is it going to continue? Is there enough room in the market to keep buying companies? Uh, what's particularly interesting or concerning to you about all that's going on right now? Yeah, I think it's interesting, and I think you have to bifurcate the activity to, let's call it, uh, large, kind of significant transactions, and let's call those maybe north of, you know, 10 or 15 million. Right. And then the very small kind of consolidation of some of the smaller players in the industry, which those deals might be million-dollar deals, $2 million deals, $3 million deals, um, which in the scope of some of the consolidators, you know, are are very small deals. And certainly, you know, to others in the industry are very small deals. So I would actually 
disagree and say in the last couple of years on the large side, there really hasn't been much activity. You know, probably kind of the retrieve access situation being the only, you know, significant deal. And, well, I guess if you count the acquisition of or the investment that Summit made in access as well. Yeah. You know, you have those two on the on the large side. And then on the small side, you know, there, there have obviously been numerous. But, you know, I think from where we sit um, in terms of, you know, investing larger amounts of money, it's been a little slower been a little slower. But I do expect it to continue. I think the interesting thing to look for over the next 12 to 24 months, obviously the, the consolidators are private equity backed. Private equity firms typically have, you know, kind of uh, hold period expectations, um, need to realize a return at a point in time. And a lot of these platforms were started at about the same time, mm-hmm. five, six, seven years ago. So it'll be interesting to see you've got kind of the consolidator of the consolidators. Right. How will that work? Those deals start to get larger and larger. I mean, you start to play in kind of a different world of, of you know, bigger private equity. So that'll be the interesting thing to watch over, over the next 12 to 24 months. What happens with the consolidators themselves? Hmm. Um, does Iron Mountain continue to be active? You know, how does their REIT status affect that? You know, does Recall become active? Does CentOS get more active on the box side? Does a new player enter, a new private equity player that kind of, you know, has reset the clock? You know, they can, you know, you could see that. Hmm. So I think that'll be the interesting thing to look for in the next 12 to 24 months on the bigger side. On the smaller side, I think you'll continue to see what you've seen. I think uh, you're always going to have, you know, family-owned and operated businesses <laughs> that are looking to exit. And I think the size of those deals, as I said, in the scope of these consolidators and others are relatively small. Hmm. And those deals are attractive uh, as tuck-ins for in-market buyers. Right. So you mentioned a couple of things. Uh, you mentioned the Iron Mountain situation. You mentioned recall. What are your thoughts on the the Iron Mountain situation? You know, I'm not an expert in REITs, and certainly that's a very niche part of the tax code and, and, and transaction world. I know we're certainly rooting for it. I think everyone in the industry is. Certainly anything that kind of pushes pushes valuation and, and, and pushes the opportunities for others forward in right. terms of, you know, others looking at this, whether it's recall or others in the future. Obviously, REITs trade at, at more attractive multiples than like an operating company as Iron Mountain is now. So, you know, I think it's a good thing. I think we've heard from analysts that, you know, they, they expect it to happen. But, you know, it remains to be seen. Obviously, there's an approval process there. I think from an industry perspective, I think certainly people are rooting for it. Yeah. So the the recall situation is another interesting one to me, and it tends to me to to ask the question, what's happening in financial boardrooms in, you know, in these large investment companies or private equity boardrooms? When they talk about this industry, it seems to me that it was big private equity companies that came to the table in the recall deal, all of which seemed to back out. And I'm only asking your opinion on this. What do you think was going on in the whole recall deal? And how was that affected by what these financial companies, these equity companies were talking about behind the scenes uh, that you might have a unique perspective on? Yeah, it's interesting, and, and we we were not involved, I will say, in, in any way, shape, or form in the, in the recall situation. You know, we heard the same kind of industry chatter that others may have heard. But, uh, you know, it was a complex situation. First of all, you're talking about a completely different world when you're talking about $2 billion deals. Right. Um, you're dealing with a handful of private equity firms, call it five to ten, that can either do that or team up with 
couple of those other folks to do a transaction of that size. But, you know, one of my guesses is that, it, and I think, I think this is maybe interesting for some of your listeners, particularly on the smaller side, my guess is that there's a greater and greater gap between the comfort that everyone in the industry has from a stability perspective. And I just think the fear from outsiders that don't know the industry and aren't, haven't been around it of how fast it may decline. In terms of paper, you're talking paper. In terms of paper and, and, and in terms of, you know, so what that means for organic box growth. Right. Um, you know, at some, time, at some point in time, that, that is still positive, I think. You know, you see that in Iron, Iron Mountain numbers. We've seen it in other numbers that, that organic growth is still positive. But at some point, it, it will be flat. And mm-hmm. at some point, it will start to decline. That, right. that almost has to happen, uh, or it certainly will happen. And so I think, you know, your expectations of what that decline looks like is going to dictate what you think these businesses are worth. And I think when you got to that, you know, kind of bulge bracket, massive private equity world, I think it was, they were, they were backing away from some of the, you know, very high multiples that have been paid in the past. And ultimately, that was kind of the chatter about why that deal didn't get done. Hmm. You know, you couldn't get to a multiple of EBITDA that the buyer and seller could agree on. And I think that's reflective of fear in, in, the, in the private equity world about how fast it might decline. So how does that then translate back into the rank and file rim service operator who's got box storage and adding shredding and, and having this sort of consolidated enterprise, that conversation that you know, was in a $2 billion deal area, does that have implications to the owner of a local record center? I think it does. I think it does. And, and certainly, you know, any of the owners of, of local record centers, there, as I said earlier, there's very, very good bankers that cover this space. Um, and I, w- I would encourage any of them, the local owners, to, you know, seek advice from, from the investment bankers that cover the space. But just my personal opinion is that, you know, I think they're they're going to have to understand that multiples are coming down. Hmm. Exit multiples are coming down. There's been quite a run for a lot of folks over the last five to 10 years, Right, all the way back to when Iron Mountain was, you know, really, really active, you know, and went from essentially nothing to, you know, 950 million of EBITDA or whatever they have today. Yeah. So that's a ton of acquisitions. And I think over time, you know, multiples were higher in the past than they will be in the future, is my guess. But again, I think that's uh, that's a decision that people have to make individually. Right. You know, one of the neat things about this business is it is kind of a lifestyle type business. Once you get the critical mass and get your real estate situation in a relatively uh, past break even, you don't necessarily have to sell. Business throws off cash flow. Right. But I just think for folks that are looking to sell, they should just be cognizant that you know there's probably going to be pressure on multiples going forward. So is the box part of this business where the true multiple lies or where the true valuation lies or because what's what's been happening for the last couple of years is sort of the development of the shredding side of the equation, the scanning and imaging side, which to me is just is just labor. You're not really delivering a whole lot of value to you know, the bigger long-term value of the company just through scanning and imaging uh, media vaults. That's a part of it, which seems to also be taking its own dive. So is box really still where the action is? I think it is. Yeah. I think it is. Um, and there's various arguments around that or, or ways you could debate that. You know, we generally agree with you on, on the scanning and imaging side. It tends to be more project-based work. 
you know, and as you know, you got to go win more projects to right. do more work. And that there's always execution in that. Now, look, if you run a good sales organization, you're going to be able to continue to recreate that work, and that's a good thing. But I do think, you know, from the outside, people love the fact, the fact that that box sits on the shelf, that account maybe grows, you know, and you're not having to recreate that dollar of revenue every single month or every right. single year. And so certainly that's that's the big driver. You know, shredding's interesting. People have various opinions. Obviously, we've had a lot of experience in the shredding space. Mm-hmm. The volatility of paper certainly gets people worked up. Generally, paper's pretty much in line at the moment with where it has been, you know, kind of on a 10 or 15-year average. So it's pretty, you know, I kind of call it normal paper. We're kind of in a normal paper world. Right. It gets a little more interesting when you have, you know, kind of abnormal paper. So say paper's at 230 or 240 instead of 160 where it is today. Then how do, re- how do people really think about multiples? You know, or when paper's very low, obviously the, the reverse of that. So, but, you know, we think that shredding is probably a little more sticky than you might otherwise guess. Right. Um, certainly not as sticky as box revenue. Right. But, you know, we're comfortable with the shredding side of the business as well. And, and certainly it falls probably between box revenue and imaging revenue, shredding probably somewhere in the middle, just in terms of people's comfort level with it. Right. Okay. So you've talked a little bit about the work you do with sort of the accesses and the GRMs of the world. Do you deal with sort of small to mid-sized operations? So what's the difference between, you know, a local record center owner meeting with their local banker and meeting or dealing with someone like you? Do you, do you even play in that world or just focused on those bigger types of deal situations? Yeah, we really don't play in that world. Okay. Um, given given the size of the group we are, really just for for it to be worth spending time, we need to be looking to invest somewhere around $20 million. And so... You know, and that might be part of an acquisition. Um, right. and certainly, okay. in deals in the past, we've gotten in smaller and kind of grown with it when we knew that that acquisitions were the path. But you know, I think the difference for them dealing with a local banker is you got you just have to understand that a local bank looks at deals through the same prism, even mm. though they're not all the same. Right. And this one, unfortunately, probably gets hurt a little bit by that because you're not getting the benefit. When you put it through the normal kind of credit matrix that a bank looks at every deal with, yeah. this industry's better than, than the average. Right. Um, and so you should be able to get a better deal because of that. Um, but the reality is, you know, it's a much more kind of fixed methodology for looking at businesses. Hmm. And so you're not going to get kind of the benefit of being a superior business to, say, a service business or a business that does have a lot of customer concentration. Right. Or a business that does have, you know, a lot of project-based work you're probably not going to get the benefit in terms of getting a better deal because a local bank just isn't going to get into that nuance. And then local banks also are probably going to look more to the real estate, which the owner may or may not own, look to kind of investing in the rack as far as building that out and taking a security interest against the rack or against the accounts receivable to the extent that they're, they're meaningful. I think the difference with us, again, it's going to be in larger transactions, but okay. you know, we really have a good understanding of the value of the company, how mm-hmm. others look at the value of the company, and we're lending against the value of the company. Got it. Okay. Well, you've, you've obviously been involved since you started in this world and you've done some big deals and you've been a part of this whole world for quite a while now. Are there any scenarios or events or deals or situations that you're particularly proud of looking back on where you are today? I think the one that comes to mind the most probably was, and it's interesting because it was the first deal we did, the shredded deal, but just a terribly unfortunate situation of, of Greg Brophy's death. Yeah. 
you know, we were the lead lender in that deal. There were several other banks in that deal. You know, and you take a privately held company that's owned by an individual, those companies run very different from, you know, private equity-backed companies that have tons of resources and help to provide. And if something happens in a private equity situation to the CEO, you know, they're going to, you know, have all types of resources to kind of be able to move on. And so here you have the personal tragedy that it was for Greg and his brother to pass away. And then layered on top of that was this is not an institutional company. Hmm. You know, we were the closest thing to that in the situation. And I think I'm just proud of the way that we were able to help them get through that. And ultimately, you know, the family ultimately sold the company, you know, and did very well. But, um, you know, those days and months and, you know, years even after Greg's death were, were really incredibly tough for the family and the company. And, you know, I like to think that we had some, uh, you know, some positive impact in helping them get through that. Oh, that's very cool. That's a, that's a great story. So uh, Richard Reese, a number of years ago, I don't know if you were at this. I'm, I'm sure you were at this conference. I don't remember you if you remember him saying this, but he said, you know, that this industry is still one of the best in the world. He said it was the second best one he'd ever seen. He didn't ever say what the best one was, but he said it was the second best one he'd ever seen. Uh, From your perspective as a finance guy, is this one of the best industries you've ever seen in all the work you do? It certainly has been. It certainly has been. I just think people will continue to be cautious about how fast it changes. Hmm. But, you know, over this last, call it five to seven years that I've been involved, it's, it's been just a stellar performer. Hmm. So hindsight is twenty twenty. If you had the ability to go back to when you, you first were a part of this special situations group and uh, with all you've, you've seen and been a part of, is there anything you would go back and do differently you know, in the last seven to ten years? No, there really isn't anything that comes to mind. It's, it's been a blessing to have gotten introduced to this industry. I, I just think it's a really unique industry, very, very collegial as you know, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. you know, all the owner operators, you know, tend to know each other, you know, help each other, um, you know, whether it's best practices or things that they do from an industry perspective. And, you know, I've built just fantastic relationships with people in this industry, you know, really learned a lot and, you know, just met some incredible entrepreneurs, been fortunate to be involved with, with some of the most successful folks in the industry, yeah, oh, um, particularly on the private side. So, you know, I've just been, uh, been lucky to have found it and have enjoyed the ride. That's very cool. Well, John, it's been a huge pleasure having you on the show. I, I appreciate your insight. I appreciate your perspective. And I know how deeply involved you are in so many different situations that most people never know about. But uh, it's very cool that you're, you're a part of this industry. And I'm, I'm really grateful that you took the time to share about that on the show today. Well, Tom, it was a pleasure, and I I really appreciate uh, the opportunity to come on. All right. Thanks for talking. All right. Thanks, Tom. Cheers. Well, there you have it. Wasn't that great? I I, I just love getting the unique perspectives of people in this industry. And John Balser is somebody who has had an incredibly unique perspective on this industry for many years. So I am really grateful he took the time to share with us today uh, to share with you what he's learned and what he's experienced. And uh, that that is, to me, one of the, the cool opportunities this industry gives us is this constant ability to hear from people who are not afraid to talk about it and who are completely 
open and comfortable in sharing some of the stuff they've learned along the way. So special thanks to John for being on the show. Thank you for being a part of the show today. I'm glad that you were able to to make it and join us on the show. And again, I want to say I'm grateful to O'Neill Software for sponsoring this show. O'Neill is celebrating more than 30 years of a commitment to lead the rim service industry. Get this, their software is installed in over a thousand record centers in more than 80 countries ranging from startups to multinationals. If you're looking for software for your rim business, no matter where you are, you can check them out at O'NeillSoft.com. That's it for us. We are out of here. Have yourself a great week and we'll be back next week with another show. See ya. Bye. Thanks for joining us on the Rim Pro Report with Tom Adams. If you enjoyed the show, please tell others. Our website is www.rimproreport.com. This broadcast is produced and hosted by Flourish Press Inc. Join us again soon.